0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at loe.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, building a green energy future. Our best hopes could be blowing in the wind offshore. We are the Saudi Arabia of
2: offshore wind. And it's free as the wind, but critics say there's a price to pay. The problem with offshore wind, wind power that's built out at sea, is just the enormously high cost of building the windmills in the first place.
1: Despite the government go-ahead, the nation's first offshore wind farm could be gone with the wind. Also, six months later, scientists take stock of the damage from the BP oil disaster
3: and efforts to save wildlife. It did work and um, it was the right thing to do at the time. We needed to do something to save those hatchlings. A very well-orchestrated plan was put in place, and we got it right. These stories and more, this week on Living on Earth. Stay with us.
0: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. California has the seventh largest economy in the world. So four years ago, when the state adopted an ambitious plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, the world took notice. Now that plan, officially known as Assembly Bill 32, could be history even before it's implemented. Opponents say the bill will stall California's already stale economy and have placed Proposition 23 on the ballot this November. Prop 23 would roll back AB 32. Terry Tamanin was Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's Secretary of Environmental Protection when AB 32 passed. Today, he's head of Seventh Generation Advisors, a climate change consulting firm. Mr. Tamanin, welcome to Living on Earth.
4: Thanks for inviting me.
1: So, for those of us not familiar with California's climate laws, what exactly is Assembly Bill 32?
4: AB 32, as it's called, also known as the Global Warming Solutions Act, pretty lofty title. Was designed uh, and passed in 2006 to help California do our fair share to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, modernize the economy uh, with clean energy and energy efficiency and low carbon uh, economic development.
1: So now comes Proposition 23. It's the ballot initiative, which is up to voters in California this November. And it would basically, as I understand it, not kill Assembly Bill 32, but roll it back. Is that right?
4: That's right. I mean, it effectively does kill it because it says that it could not be implemented until unemployment reaches uh, very low levels. And that just puts a lot of uncertainty into the process, which currently is on a path to quite a bit of certainty.
1: Supporters of um, Prop 23, which would roll back 32, have a a very well-financed campaign.
4: There's no question that the proponents of Prop 23 are well-financed, and in some ways it's being financed by you and me, because uh, we know that it's mostly from three major oil companies from out of state, one Oklahoma, two from Texas, that have bankrolled this with millions and millions of dollars, and I say that money comes from you and me, because every time we fill up our cars, we're supporting the oil industry that is effectively trying to turn back the clock 100 years on technology and, and California's economic future.
1: So would there be international implications if Californians voted to roll back AB 32?
4: You know, California has a history of being a leader on environmental policy, whether it was being the first to have a Clean Air Act or a Clean Water Act. The U.S. Congress then typically follows, and then often the rest of the world does. And although Europe was ahead of us on climate change policy, China, which is the other big emitter along with the U.S. that so far has no major regulations, is kind of waiting. And uh, if the U.S. doesn't act, we realize that uh, the rest of the world is not going to come up with a comprehensive solution to this problem. So if California can't do it, this great leader on environmental technology and policy, if California can't do it, you could imagine that Congress would pretty much stall any action, and therefore the U.S. is not going to be part of the solution.
1: So as goes California, so goes the United States.
4: Exactly. And therefore, unfortunately, so goes the world. You know, California has acted like a nation state, especially under Governor Schwarzenegger, and uh, has reached out and and signed agreements with provinces in China, with states in Brazil to deal with uh, deforestation, with uh, countries in Europe, with provinces up in Canada and so on, because we realize that there's a real need to share policies, to share technologies, to figure out how to do these things together, and it's, uh, it's something the world understands but is still struggling with. So, you know, California could certainly still honor those commitments, but really what's harmed is the economic development that is likely to be coming with them.
1: That economic development would be done by by companies. How would Proposition 23 affect the investment in clean technologies?
4: Well, if Prop 23 passes and effectively ends the implementation of AB 32, then the price on carbon doesn't occur. There isn't a marketplace for carbon emissions where creative businesses can figure out how to reduce faster than others and then trade credits to one another. Uh, The whole concept of a cap-and-trade is to bring down emissions but allow business the most creative and cost-effective ways to to achieve it. And so, for example, the, the deal that California struck with Brazil to allow carbon credits to be created that could be traded into a California and Western States marketplace for well-managed forests that prove they've reduced greenhouse gas emissions by forestry practices. Those credits could be traded to a company in California that has an obligation to reduce but hasn't been able to do so yet. They could buy those credits from Brazil. That entire marketplace goes away, and that entire economic driver for economic development on both ends uh, of the equation goes away.
1: If Proposition 23 were to pass, would California still be able to move forward on some clean energy fronts?
4: Well, certainly. I mean, California has been a leader in solar before the passage of uh, AB 32. We, We passed our own Million Solar Roofs initiative under Governor Schwarzenegger, for example. And we have our Renewable Portfolio Standard, which is helping utilities to make California much greener in terms of the electricity that they deliver to customers. We have our tailpipe emissions standards from clean cars. Those standards were adopted by the Obama administration as national standards. So there's a variety of measures in place that, uh, with or without AB 32, would move forward. But, again, it creates a time of uncertainty, which businesses always would come to me when I was in government and say, the one thing we want is certainty. We can deal with a little more cost or, you know, some other new way of doing business. We just want certainty so we can plan. And Prop 23 is entirely going in the wrong direction.
1: Terry Tamanin is founder of Seventh Generation Advisors. His latest and soon-to-be-released book is Cracking the Carbon Code. Mr. Tamanin, thank you very much.
4: My pleasure. Thanks for asking.
1: October 20th marks half a year since the BP oil disaster. The explosion killed 11 workers, and before the well was capped, some 200 million gallons of oil had gushed into the Gulf of Mexico. Within days, the Obama administration imposed a moratorium on deep water drilling in the Gulf. This past week, the feds lifted the ban and imposed much stricter safety rules and regulations on the oil industry. But much more murky is the state of the Gulf ecosystem. During the disaster, we spoke with many wildlife scientists. Now, six months later, Living on Earth's Jeff Young caught up with some of them to find out how the Gulf's doing.
5: It was mid-May when I last spoke with Melanie Driscoll of the Audubon Society's Louisiana Coastal Initiative. Driscoll walked the beach of Louisiana's Grand Isle, counting birds and looking for signs of the massive oil slick. She knew then that the ultimate effects would be hard to spot.
6: There's a saying about ecology that it's not rocket science. It's a lot more complicated than that. (laughs) We're looking at a system. The birds rely not just on their feathers insulating them. They rely on food chains that are underwater or in the sand, they rely on protection from predators by being familiar with their surroundings. It's very complicated.
5: Federal records show that some 95 species of birds were collected from the Gulf Coast during the oil blowout. Nearly 7,000 died. And oddly, that's the good news. Driscoll says she had feared a much higher body count by now.
7: And what we know now is that the direct effects were much less than they might have been. Fewer birds were oiled and therefore less death initially. We're still very concerned, though, about the longer-term effects of oil in the food chain, oil in the environment, and that we may not be seeing the effects of on their
4: reproduction or survival for a number of years.
5: Now, Driscoll is watching the fall migrants. They need the Delta's bounty of insects, worms, and crustaceans to fuel up for the flight south. Driscoll fears the oiled islands and wetlands might still be tainted or simply not offer enough food. So wildlife officials are trying to lure birds away from shore by flooding inland fields, creating new habitat. But Driscoll says many species are still drawn to the coasts where they always go. She's finding the most birds in the spots with the most remnant oil.
7: That's what we saw during this sort of six-month mark was that because these areas are traditionally such good areas for birds, the birds are choosing to be there even though those are the areas that had the most oil. And so we have concerns that they may be having to work harder to fatten up, or they might not fatten up as well, and therefore not be in, as fit to
4: fly across the Gulf.
5: Other scientists I spoke with share Driscoll's mix of relief about the oil's direct impact and uncertainty about the long term. Back in early July, groups that work with endangered sea turtles were looking at a dire situation. Turtles were coming ashore to nest just as the oil hit. Sea Turtle Conservancy Director David Godfrey told us about a daring plan to move the turtle nests.
3: Well, in essence, what we're trying to do is save this year's entire hatchling class of sea turtles from the north gulf coast of florida from emerging from their nest and then swimming out into the gulf to really meet almost certain doom
5: federal and state officials non-profit groups and volunteers hand dug some 25,000 eggs and loaded them into special containers fedex trucks carried them across the florida peninsula to oil free waters of the atlantic it was unprecedented and risky we called godfrey back to see if it worked
3: it did work And um, it was the right thing to do uh, at the time. The oil conditions were such that we needed to do something to save those hatchlings. A very well-orchestrated plan was put in place, and we got it right.
5: About 15,000 hatchlings got a fresh start in the Atlantic. As for the turtles in the Gulf, some 600 dead have been collected. Whether the turtles can bounce back depends largely on how their habitat recovers from the oil. In late July, I took a boat trip near the mouth of the Mississippi with National Wildlife Federation conservation scientist Doug Inkley. Inkley was looking for the floating brown algae called sargassum, its crucial habitat for sea turtle hatchlings, fish larvae, and other small creatures. You can see how it's got a lot of surface area for eggs and larvae to hang on to. A glob of oil on your hand there? Oh yeah, there is oil
8: coming right out of the sargassum. Every place that we've seen sargassum so far, we're seeing the oil
2: and blobs. So everything that's attracted to sargassum here is, in essence, being attracted
5: to oil. Then, rusty brown blobs lurked under the surface as far down as we could see. But just a little more than a month later, the sea turtle conservancy's Godfrey found much better conditions.
3: You know, it's kind of surprising, to be honest with you, how normal it looked. Uh, healthy mats of sargassum weed had floated in from other areas of the Gulf where they had never been exposed to oil. Um, That sargassum was full of all the the sorts of critters, uh, fish, crabs, and even found a lot of uh, healthy juvenile turtles in that habitat. The
5: surface looks good, Godfrey says, but most of the remaining oil is in the depths where effects are harder to measure. Scientists I spoke with say it's far too early to know what's happening to deep-sea creatures or animals like the sperm whale and the bluefin tuna. The government has just started its full accounting of the spill's impact with what's called the Natural Resources Damage Assessment. NERDA, as it's known, can take years, and most researchers compiling that official report can't talk about their work. All of which means most answers about the Deepwater Horizon disaster are still on the distant horizon. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young.
1: Just ahead, even a weatherman can't tell which way the wind is blowing for the nation's first offshore wind farm. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Offshore wind is the fastest-growing source of electricity in the world, but the United States has been slow to harness the power of wind at sea. While Europe has 40 offshore wind farms operating today and 20 more in the works, the U.S. has precisely zero. But that could rapidly change now that Google has announced it's getting into offshore wind power. Or should I say Google's getting under offshore wind power? The company has announced it's teaming up with a New York financial firm to fund the construction of a huge underwater transmission line. The grid would connect still-to-be-built wind farms at sea off the mid-Atlantic coast. Here's Google's Rick Needham.
6: This will serve as a superhighway with on-ramps for wind farms and the ability to intelligently be expanded to increase the amount of offshore wind that's available.
1: The U.S. is blessed with some of the best offshore wind in the world. By government estimates, the wind off the Atlantic coast, Gulf of Mexico, and Great Lakes could potentially generate four times the amount of electricity than that currently produced by all of our existing power plants combined. We are the Saudi Arabia of offshore wind. And Jim Gordon has big plans to make use of that embarrassment of renewable riches. Gordon is president of Cape Wind, a Massachusetts company planning to construct the nation's first offshore wind farm. If and when it's built, it will produce enough electricity to power nearly a quarter of a million homes with no climate change
2: emissions. Cape Wind is the largest single greenhouse gas mitigation initiative in the United States.
1: On Nantucket Sound, just off the coast of Cape Cod, the wind blows strong and steady. It's here on a 24-square-mile site on what's called Horseshoe Shoal that Jim Gordon wants to erect Cape Wind. 130 huge turbines mounted on giant towers driven deep into the shallow seafloor and close to transmission lines on land. Cape Wind spokesman Mark Rogers calls the site the perfect place to create energy out of thin air.
5: You know, the basic concept is quite simple, and I think that goes to kind of the elegance of it, which is that instead of burning coal or natural gas to create heat, to boil water, to make steam, to exert a force to turn a turbine, right, which is how electricity is made the conventional way, or in the case of a nuclear reaction, to create heat to do the same thing, you know, here it is just the force of the wind turning the wind turbine blades.
1: Offshore wind produces no air pollution or radioactive waste. There's no possibility of an oil disaster or the threat of foreign embargoes. The wind is inexhaustible, and the cost for the fuel,
2: the wind, is zero. But there's a but. It's easy to get dazzled by the notion that wind has to be cheap.
1: You know, the the wind is free. Jonathan Houghton is senior economist at Beacon Hill Institute. Over the years, the free market think tank has produced a series of reports that conclude Cape Wind will hurt tourism and lower property values. Now, Houghton says the project
2: is just too expensive. The problem with offshore wind, wind power that's built out at sea, is just the enormously high cost of building the windmills in the first place. It's the capital cost that's the killer compared to onshore wind. If it had to operate on a market basis, it simply wouldn't start. Ten years ago, when it was first
1: proposed, Cape Wind was projected to cost $750 million. Today, the construction costs have more than tripled. Cape Wind has been treading water for nearly a decade because never before had anyone tried to build a wind farm off the U.S. coast. Jim Gordon essentially had to invent the process. It meant navigating 17 federal bureaucracies and state agencies negotiating 140 laws and statutes, producing a bookshelf of new environmental studies and surveys, and successfully fending off a dozen
2: lawsuits. It shouldn't take this long, because while we've gone through this 10-year torturous process, the Europeans, and now even the Chinese, are blowing past us in terms of the offshore wind industry.
1: Still, despite the
2: fact that Cape Wind has
1: received all the federal and state permits and environmental permissions it needs, the project continues to be a hot political issue. At the first gubernatorial debate
5: in Massachusetts, Cape Wind was the issue.
9: It's amazing that only in Massachusetts can we say that a project that has taken 10 years to get from concept to final approval (laughs) is hasty.
1: Democratic Governor Deval Patrick is running for re-election and the only candidate supporting Cape Wind.
5: I think it's good for us from an environmental point of view, from an energy point of view, from an economic point of view, and from a symbolic point of view.
1: Independent candidate Tim Cahill disagrees. Cape Wind is the wrong project in the
2: wrong place at the wrong time. We're talking about windmills. Windmills is not a new technology. It's not a technology that really, I think, is moving us forward. It'd be like me saying we should go back to steam engines rather than diesel for for freight trains.
1: Republican candidate Charlie Baker says he supports renewable energy just not Cape Wind.
6: There are other alternatives that are available to us that are cheaper, more affordable, and in the end, I believe, better from a diversification strategy than this one. This is a monstrous big bet on one project, when in many ways we probably should be better off letting a thousand flowers of other kinds bloom along the way. Perhaps surprisingly,
1: Jill Stein, the Green Rainbow Party candidate, also questions the value of the offshore wind project.
5: As Cape Wind comes to us today, it's clearly not delivering the most green energy for every dollar invested. And it's asking for an enormous investment, probably two and a half billion dollars, that will mostly come from ratepayers.
1: A recent Boston Globe poll found nearly 70 percent of Massachusetts residents favor Cape Wind. But support drops to half when the price of its energy is considered. It's only now, at the end of the process, that consumers have learned the price they'll pay. Matt DePrado is an offshore wind analyst with Emerging Energy Research.
3: Yeah, it was one of those bridges that people didn't really think about until they had to cross it, and now we're at that point where it's come to the forefront, and it's a decision that ratepayers and policymakers will have to make on is this cost reasonable, and are we willing to bear this burden?
1: Reasonable is the critically important word Massachusetts law uses to set renewable energy rates. But what's reasonable to pay for energy from the nation's first offshore wind farm? To find an answer, I headed to a hearing at the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities. My route turned out to be a small metaphor for the twists and turns the Cape Wind project has taken over the past decade. The DPU is located in Boston's South Station. First, I got a badge from the receptionist. And took an elevator to the second floor. There I showed my badge to another receptionist who gave me a key. I unlocked the door, held it open with my foot, and tossed the key back to the receptionist. Then at the end of a long hallway overlooking the train station, I walked down a short flight of steps. Then I took another elevator up to the fourth floor and followed handwritten signs. The labyrinth led to a makeshift hearing room, which I found filled with lawyers and industry officials.
6: In addition, there are a number of information requests that have been submitted pursuant to... Um, Motions for protective treatment, AG-CW-3-7A, B, and C.
1: They were listening to a mind-numbing litany of renewable energy regulation minutiae.
6: APNS-AG-1-1.
1: This slow-moving hearing might lack the high drama of political debate, but it's here that the future of Cape Wind, and indirectly that of the nation's offshore wind industry, will be decided. Investors will be looking to see if offshore wind can be profitable. For Cape Wind, it means convincing two of the three public utility commissioners that the cost of energy from the wind farm is reasonable and worth the price consumers will pay. But even Cape Winds, Mark Rogers acknowledges, the price is high.
9: Well, offshore
5: wind is more expensive than uh, land-based wind, for example.
1: More than twice as expensive as wind generated on land or electricity produced by burning fossil fuels or nuclear power. Offshore wind requires special barges and costly equipment during construction, and the towers and turbines have to be built to weather corrosive seawater and violent storms. Initially, Cape Wind wanted 21 cents a kilowatt hour for its electricity. The Massachusetts Attorney General was able to knock 2 cents off that rate, but permitted the price to rise 3.5% a year for inflation, and utilities that purchase the electricity will get another 4% a year just for doing the deal. That's too steep a price, says Washington attorney Glenn Benson.
2: Yeah, what they want to do is have Massachusetts ratepayers pay for the cost of developing Cape Wind when there are lower-priced, competitive alternatives available.
1: Benson represents Cape Wind's nemesis, the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound. Fossil fuel billionaire Bill Koch is co-chair of the Alliance and one of its largest financial backers. The Alliance's new target is Massachusetts' biggest utility, National Grid, because National Grid has agreed to buy half the energy Cape Wind will generate for 15 years.
2: What we believe in is competition, and National Grid should be buying from the lower-priced alternatives unless it shows a really compelling reason to do otherwise, and I don't think they've come close to doing that here.
1: Actually, National Grid has a compelling reason. It's required by law. Massachusetts and 30 other states have renewable energy portfolio standards. Each year, utilities must purchase an increasing percentage of their energy from renewable sources. For Massachusetts, it's 20% renewable by 2020, and it goes up from there. And the state goes even further. Utilities must lock in to long-term clean energy contracts. Ronald Garatowski, general counsel of National Grid, did a supply and demand analysis of the company's future energy needs and found the utility had no alternative but to buy energy from Cape Wind. And we
9: look across the next 10 to 15 years, and we see this huge renewables resources gap. And, and it was our judgment that that gap really can't be filled
5: in the, in a reasonable period of time without Cape Wind being a part of the mix. Because
1: utilities get their electricity from a variety of sources, National Grid calculates the high price of Cape Wind energy will only cost the average consumer about a dollar and a quarter more a month. And Ian Bowles, Massachusetts Secretary of Energy and Environment, says the long-term contract will act as a hedge against fossil fuel price hikes in the future.
4: My view
2: is that the contract is more likely than not to save money for consumers over its
1: 15-year life. You know, the one thing we can say about energy price forecasting is it is almost always wrong and it's almost always too low. Just two years ago, before the economic recession, energy demand and electricity prices were 30 percent higher. Back then, the average Massachusetts ratepayers bill was $20 more a month than today. Supporters of offshore wind say it's a long-term investment in the future that the added cost today is a small price to pay not just for clean, renewable electricity, but for launching a new industry that could add tens of thousands of jobs. The U.S. Department of Energy predicts by the year 2030 we'll need 100 Cape Wind-sized projects. But the choice is ultimately ours, says Matt De Prado, analyst with Emerging Energy Research.
3: You know, people aren't going to put down their iPods anytime soon. They're not going to turn off the HDTV. So it's a matter of what price are you willing to pay to keep that, and that's both an economic price and an environmental price. And the degree to which the ratepayers and taxpayers think that we have to be more mindful of our environment will be the degree to which renewable energy succeeds or fails in the United States.
1: Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities will decide if the cost of Cape Wind's energy is reasonable by mid-November. But opponents still intent on killing the project have filed four new lawsuits, and litigation could scare off potential investors. In the coming weeks, I'll have a report about generating jobs and competition among states as they try to catch the wind. Coming up, turning over a new leaf, an electric leaf that is, but first this note on Emerging Science from Megan Miner.
6: Surfers aren't alone in their love of riding waves. Ocean-dwelling crocodiles like to catch big water swells too. Saltwater crocodiles are the world's largest reptiles. They can be as long as 20 feet and weigh as much as 3,000 pounds. These massive beasts spend most of their time lounging in waters throughout the coastal Pacific and have surprisingly little genetic diversity for such a large range. Scientists have long wondered how these relatively poor swimmers travel to distant places, so Australian researchers in Queensland decided to monitor the creatures. They tagged 27 saltwater crocs and tracked their positions for a year using sonar transmitters and underwater receivers. And what they discovered is that these reptiles are not unlike their human counterparts when it comes to surfing the waves. The crocodiles use surface ocean currents and wait for the best conditions before catching a ride out to sea. And they have a good sense of direction. An earlier study found that these crocs were able to find their way back home after being relocated hundreds of miles away. For years, mariners have reported spotting these floating giants far from land but now sightings can be validated. And with all four claws paddling along in the water, these bulky behemoths really know how to hang 20. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Megan Miner.
1: A London Times reporter recently set a world efficiency record driving a standard VW Passat from Kent, England to the south of France and back, 1530 miles on just 20 and a half gallons of gas. That's 75 miles per gallon. But Nissan's new car, the LEAF, gets five times better mileage with no gas at all. LEAF has become a backronym, leading environmentally friendly affordable family car. And living on Earth's forward-looking Western Bureau Chief Ingrid Lubet took it for a spin. Ingrid, how was it?
7: It wasn't really that different from driving other cars in its class, maybe a Nissan Sentra, Toyota, Corolla, Honda Civic, except that the handling was maybe a a little bit better, really responsive, nothing sloppy in the handling of this car at all. And the other thing is, of course, since it's electric, you have really strong pickup because you've got the full torque of the motor available as soon as you touch the accelerator. And uh, also, I was impressed with how tightly it took the curves.
1: And quiet, I guess, right?
7: Silent. Yep. Electric cars
1: are quiet. Is it big? Is it small? Is it comfortable?
7: It's comfortable. I have to tell you, it really reminds you of driving another car that would be in the same size class, like a compact car. So, you know, you don't have a feeling of luxury, but you don't really feel cramped. You definitely can put five people in this car, and they say you can put three car seats across the back if you... Have the need for three car seats at one time, Bruce. Um, you can also fold those rear seats down and you can fold them down in two different units. So you could have, let's say, a second passenger in the back, but put a larger piece of luggage in the back by folding down the other half of the back seat. So it's got that kind of flexibility that a lot of the compact cars have right now.
1: How far can you go?
7: About 100 miles, but this will depend somewhat on the weather, because if you need to turn on the heat or the air conditioning, if you have to keep run that very much, uh, then you're going to get less. You're going to get maybe only 65 miles to the charge. But if you have mild weather, you don't need to run the air conditioning or the heat and uh, you're going maybe 40 miles an hour most of the time, you might get more, like 135 miles to the charge.
1: Now, we should say this is not a hybrid. There's no two motors. There's just one motor and it's an electric motor.
7: This is a fully electric battery-only car, no gasoline.
1: But what if I take a nice drive and, uh, you know, I run out of juice? What do I do? Where do I go?
7: Well, see, this is clearly the limitation of an electric car, and it's why the naysayers have said there will really never be much of a market for an electric car, because you can't take this on a long drive. If you have a long commute each day to work, this isn't the car for you. And it's also not the car you're going to want to take on the long trip to grandma's house either, because you're going to have to recharge after a 100 miles.
1: So, Ingrid, how long does it take to juice this car up, to charge it up?
7: If you buy one of these cars, I think you're probably going to want to go to the extra expense of hiring an electrician to bring the same voltage into your charging space, your driveway or your garage, that you have for your dryer or your electric stove. The regular outlet voltage, 110, is probably going to take too long. So charging it at 240 volts, it's going to take about five hours or overnight.
1: Mm, what price? What's the cost? $32,500
7: subtract from that the federal tax credit of seven thousand five hundred dollars that brings the price down to twenty five thousand dollars and a number of states have their own rebates california gives you a five thousand dollar rebate that brings the price down to twenty thousand dollars plus tax
1: wow that's really incredible
7: it's an affordable electric car
1: so uh, what was the reception to this when you took it out for a test drive people look kind of bending their necks to take a look
7: Yeah, the place was jammed. And besides that, you can't even sign up for one of these things now. The first 20,000 vehicles that they had available are already spoken for. So you can't even put money down right now. So this is really a pleasant surprise for Nissan. And I have to say, it vindicates the electric vehicle enthusiasts who've said for years that despite the limited range, there is a demand for a fully electric vehicle.
1: Well, Ingrid, happy motoring. Thanks a lot.
7: Thanks a lot, Bruce. It's been a pleasure.
1: Ingrid Lobet is Eloise Western Bureau Chief. Coming up, shrinking the carbon footprint of your clothes, just ahead on Living on Earth. Support
0: for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Do you have any idea what's in the cleaning products underneath your kitchen sink? We didn't, so we asked Eloise hanna Lyles to take a look under ours.
8: Let's see. We have Unisand Kitchen Heavy Duty All-Surface Cleaner. The label on the can says non-flammable, no phosphates, harmless to the environment, and there's a list of contents. Sodium bicarbonate, nonolphenol ethoxylate, triethanolamine. Let's see, what else? Sensations with oxygen cleaning action. Caution, keep out of reach of children, avoid irritating fumes, do not mix with chlorine bleach,
6: but I don't see the ingredients anywhere.
1: These days, finding out the chemicals in household cleaners is hit or miss. But 35 years ago, the New York legislature decided it was time for manufacturers of cleaning products to come clean and reveal their ingredients. The law was never enforced, though. That is, until now. The New York Department of Environmental Conservation is dusting off that long-forgotten law and holding hearings on how to implement it. Urvashi Rangan is an environmental scientist and director of technical policy for Consumers Union. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. So how is it that a thirty-five year old law requiring the disclosure of chemicals and products has never been enforced?
8: Yeah, it's not really clear how it was never enforced. A group called Earth Justice, which is an environmental law firm, actually came upon this statute and filed suit against four large cleaning manufacturers to force them to disclose the ingredients on their formulations. They did not win that lawsuit, but they began efforts to encourage the Department of Environmental Conservation in New York to enforce the law in and of themselves.
1: So what are the benefits of disclosure? I mean, why disclose
8: most consumers think what they pull off the shelves in the supermarket is safe or has been demonstrated as being safe, they would be surprised to learn that a number of the ingredients that are used in cleaning products today may not be as safe as they think. Beyond that, consumers want to be able to purchase the safest products on the market, and without full ingredient disclosure, they simply can't make informed or comparative choices.
1: What about federal laws? Aren't there federal laws requiring disclosure of chemicals in compounds? There are some
8: federal laws regarding incredibly hazardous materials used in cleaning products. If you have a hazardous material or the product itself is hazardous, you have to use certain types of labels. If you have an antibacterial cleaner or a disinfectant, it's actually a pesticidal product, and the active ingredients in those pesticidal products have to be disclosed.
1: I know a lot of companies are now moving to voluntary disclosure, and they're, and they're doing it online.
8: There are a number of progressive companies who are really going above and beyond what's required of them today to provide ingredient disclosure. They can even do a better job, too, when we look at things like plant-derived surfactant as an ingredient. Tell us what surfactant it is.
1: Well, I'm going to go to a, a website. It's what's inside scjohnson.com. I'm looking at their Fantastic with Pure Orange Oil. You can see it's got a chelator. I guess it is tetrasodium EDTA. Fragrance information will be added soon. And uh, dye, it has a brilliant orange dye, it's called. But that's it.
8: Yeah, and we'd like to know what's inside the brilliant orange dye, and we'd like to know what's inside the fragrance. These companies know that people want this information, and the steps they've taken are very positive, but they haven't gone quite far enough. And this is ultimately where we would like to see full disclosure of these ingredients.
1: Yeah, if I press on the tetrasodium EDTA, all it says is um, a chelator that removes soils. doesn't help me much.
8: No. And one of the parts of this law in New York that's very interesting is that these ingredients should be disclosed along with their health or environmental hazard information. And that's something that consumers are also looking for in terms of being able to make the best informed choices.
1: More and more products are making a virtue out of using, um, quote, quote, natural ingredients. I try to find out what natural means. And according to federal law, that's kind of meaningless.
8: Yeah, unfortunately, the natural label is almost one of the top greenwashing terms for us. There are very few standards behind what that term means. It only necessarily might mean that something came from a natural source, but you can extract something from a plant and you can also chemically react that into an ingredient. And so that term is very loosey-goosey and consumers shouldn't rely on that term without doing some additional homework. Non-toxic is another one of those labels that just has no standards behind it and no verification whatsoever. And in fact, in a report we did on cleaners and reported that non-toxic had no standardized meaning, we heard back from a company who sent us a lot of documentation to support their use of non-toxic. In review of that documentation, we actually came upon a carcinogen that's used in the product. And so it's just sort of highlights how companies can use that term really any which way they want to, even if they have a little bit of carcinogen in their product, too.
1: Urvesh, are you one of those consumers who I see standing in the supermarket aisle reading the, the fine print?
8: Well, for my job here at Consumer Reports, I am that consumer standing in the store reading the labels, trying to make sense of them, yes.
1: What about when you go shopping? Do you know what to buy?
8: Not all the time. And I see new labels all the time on the market. And I always have to ask myself, what do they mean? Is somebody behind them? Is there a set of standards behind it? And when it comes to cleaning products, when I see labels, I can't often find ingredient decks that are specific enough for me to be able to make a proper judgment. And that's the kind of thing we'd like to see get better for not only consumers, but to level the playing field in the marketplace.
1: Urvashi Rangan is an environmental health scientist, director of technical policy for Consumers Union, and the project director of Consumer Reports, GreenerChoices.org. Urvashi Rangan, thank you very much.
8: You're so welcome.
1: Over much of North America, skeins of geese and ducks are heading south down the flyways to warmer climes. But as the weather cools, some birds flock to wetlands and waters not so far away. Frank Corrado has this bird note.
2: Autumn brings back many kinds of ducks to our lakes and ponds, but few are as instantly recognizable as the duck aptly named Northern Shoveler. The Northern Shoveler's oversized, spoon-shaped bill helps it stand out in even the most crowded pond. (coughs) And while it doesn't actually use its bill to shovel, the northern shoveler's extra-large bill has a very special function. Many ducks tip downward to feed, their heads submerged, their tails pointing to the sky. The shoveler, though, skims tiny plants and animals off the water's surface. Holding its bill flat at the surface and moving its head side to side, the shoveler pulls water in at the tip of its bill, then filters out the edibles with the help of tiny comb-like structures on its tongue. (laughs) And shovelers are social feeders. Picture dozens of shovelers feeding side by side as one, a feathered phalanx paddling and sweeping the surface, all the while rotating in a circular pattern across the pond a pinwheeling mass of feathers and bills in shades of emerald green, brown, and white.
1: That's Frank Carrado for Bird Note. You can see videos of northern shovelers at our website, LOE.org. And while you're online, flap over to our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. California, there's a new fashion. Think globally, dress locally. Clothing makes the environmentalist. for a woman who has sworn off materials from afar and will only dress in local wear. Reporter
9: Lonnie Shavelson has our story. On a hot day in hilly suburban Fairfax, California, Catherine Jolda is pumping her bicycle pedals. But the bike doesn't move. That's because the bike chain has been detached from the wheel and attached to two large spinning metal drums coated with fine teeth rotating against each other. Jolda feeds raw wool right off a sheep into what she calls her carding contraption.
0: It's carding the wool, and carding is basically brushing the wool out.
9: The drum's teeth yank the wool in, chew on it, and then spit it out the other side.
0: And all the fibers are smooth and it's untangled. And from there, um, I make felt from
6: it.
9: Jolda is teaching an energized group of women to start with wool from local sheep and finish with clothing for Rebecca Burgess, a 32-year-old lover of textiles and the environment. She's vowed that every item of clothing she wears in the next year will be made from local materials.
0: I thought I was quite the environmentally conscious person, but I (laughs) have a closet packed with clothes, 15 pairs of pants, 30 shirts. Burgess learned from
9: Patagonia's Footprint Chronicles that the production and shipping of much of the clothing she owned put some 40 times its weight in carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and that enormous textile factories are huge freshwater polluters. So she cut the size of her wardrobe.
0: Two skirts, two pairs of pants, one sweatshirt, one sweater, a swimsuit.
9: But for Burgess, that didn't go far enough to protect the environment. She knew she loved cotton.
0: And so I thought, if I could find a cotton farmer...
9: So she asked around, and... She's 90 miles from my front door, growing cotton. She also loved wearing wool clothes from alpaca, a small version of a llama.
0: And I looked at, where's the alpaca being raised? Well, 147 miles from my front door.
9: And that was the birth of the Fibershed Project. Just like your watershed geographically defines your supply of water, a fibershed is the region that supplies your clothing fibers. Right now, it's the entire world. Not very local. Burgess has limited the source of materials for her clothes to a radius of 150 miles of her house, a local fiber shed. In support, dozens have joined to help make her clothes. you'll take
6: the second half of the wool and do the same thing over.
9: In Burgess's backyard garden of plants grown for their dyes, Catherine Jolder removes the wool from the bicycle carter and wets it with hot water to begin forming felt.
0: Felting really is the most efficient way that I've found of turning a raw material into a useful
9: apparel. Jolda hands the felted wool to Burgess. She immerses it in a huge pot of boiling water richly colored with indigo dyes from plants she's grown.
0: And I've been raising it and honing it through seed selection to grow well in my climate.
9: Okay, reality check. Burgess lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. So do about 7 million other people. How many can have their clothing come from local sheep or cultivate indigo for color? Can this be scaled up to any practical environmental benefit?
10: No, not domestically. It's not a scalable idea.
9: San Francisco State University apparel professor Connie Leshowitz co-authored the book Sustainable Design. She says the Fibershed Project is dependent on Burgess's extraordinary knowledge and dedication in a geographic area rich in natural plant fibers, animals, and activists.
10: I think that this is an ecological curiosity going on in Northern California.
9: But, says the professor, criticizing the Fibershed Project because it can't be scaled up to millions of clothing buyers in a fabric-based environmental revolution misses the point. This project, she says, reflects a general movement in the garment industry towards sustainability. Sustainable
10: design, green design, eco-design, how can we simplify, reduce carbon footprints? There is a great movement to produce local, to manufacture local.
9: And in that sense, she says, the Fibershed project should not be judged by whether it's upwardly scalable in money or marketing.
10: But scalable in the idea of the value and the meaning for this individual and what others can learn from that, it's interesting. It's more than interesting. What she is doing with her inspiration for this project is also the idea of, I can sustain myself.
9: Burgess admits that a local wardrobe is for the rare few, like her, with time, skills, and a lot of supportive friends to design, dye, weave, and sew. But she says the Fibershed project also illustrates the grand ecological errors of the textile industry. Take the wool being fed into the backyard bicycle carting The region's sheep are raised for meat, not wool. The ranchers had been throwing the wool into landfills, 70,000 pounds of it a year until Burgess started gathering some for her clothes. The rest still goes to landfills, says Burgess.
0: We're importing millions of pounds of wool from New Zealand. It's being milled in China, and yet we're throwing wool away here.
9: And since this all started with Burgess's realization that her commercially made clothes create a huge carbon imprint, she's now calculating the environmental impact of her shed clothes. What's her carbon output when she drives to sheep ranches to get wool or transport locally grown cotton just for her use? How much water does it take to wash the wool and cotton, irrigate her dye plants? How much energy to boil water to make the dyes, run her sewing machine, light her workshop? Burgess estimates that Fibershed clothes are less environmentally costly, but the data is not in yet. For Living on Earth, I'm Lonnie Schavelson.
1: To see a slideshow of the Fibershed Project go to our website, LOE.org. the next Living on Earth, new studies suggest the first nine months could be the whole nine yards.
2: These early life events causing later life disease is something we need to think about more in terms of medicine. What you are is to a large degree determined what your mother did during pregnancy.
1: New findings from the science of epigenetics next time on Living on Earth. The belching, sneezing, coughing, and wheezing may sound like a bad cold, but the barking gives it away. These noisy mammals are California sea lions. Producer Mark Seth Lender made this recording at a floating pier outside Elkhorn Slough in Monterey Bay. It's an area the sea lions called their own for thousands of years before people drove them away. But the sea lions have learned a pier is as good a place as any to haul out, and thanks to the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the pinnipeds are back. <coughs> Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike, Srees Kandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Hawkins and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Nora Doyle Burr and Hannah Lyles. We had engineering help this week from Dana Chisholm. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lewis Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwit is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at loe.org. And while you're online, visit MyPlanetHarmony.com. Our sister program, Planet Harmony, welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. I'm Bruce Gellerman.
2: Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows details at stonyfield.com Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And PAX World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social and governance factors into investment analysis and decision making. On the web at paxworld.com PAX World, for tomorrow. P-R-I